Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com. Oh, for Pete's sake. <laughs> Hello, welcome to another episode of the Weeds on the Box Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias here with Dara Lynn and Jane Coaston. And I, I wanted to talk today about Justin Amash, who has uh, long been, I think, one of the more interesting members of Congress, um, but who got interesting in a very interesting way uh, over (laughs) over the weekend when he did. This is 2019, so this is how you do things. But this is a Republican member of Congress from Michigan. He did a tweet storm uh, saying that he had read the Mueller report and he had concluded that Donald Trump committed impeachable offenses. this is obviously a controversial stance inside the Republican caucus. It's getting into all kinds of trouble. But I think, you know, before we delve into the specifics of that, it's just like, who is this guy, right? Because like, this is not like a moderate Republican who's holding on to a blue-leaning district by the skin of his fingers looking to to save his career. This is... This is someone who came in, um, you know, he is a libertarian conservative. He came into Congress as part of the Tea Party Revolution of 2010. And if you remember what the Tea Party was originally about, the Tea Party stated that its purpose was to fight for limited government and lower taxes and just getting kind of the state out of the individual lives and homes of everyday Americans. And and though, as Justin Amash uh, said to the Washington Post, I think yesterday, it turns out that isn't exactly what the Tea Party he wound up being about. But anyway, so he represents a pretty conservative part of West, Western Michigan. Holler at my uh, Western Michigan homies. Um, but, you know, he has long been pretty much of a stalwart on issues of importance to libertarians. Um, there, Eric Erickson, the conservative pundit, uh, put up a post yesterday saying that, like, he has been really staunch on issues of FISA reform, um, issues having to do with um, drones and drone warfare, um, just across the board, very much of a quote-unquote constitutional conservative, a thing that still kind of exists, but it turns out that constitutional conservatives aren't very popular with other conservatives when they say things those conservatives don't like. I mean, I think, like, you know, the stuff that you mentioned, Jane, is definitely there aren't a lot of Republicans in Congress who are talking about it, but they're, like... That's the kind of stuff that Rand Paul has generally been okay on, as, or like he's you know been consistent right. on rather right. as a member of Congress. But there's the kind of 
less low-hanging fruit for a self-identified libertarian in Congress is what do you do on the government spending money on things conservatives like, like the military, like immigration enforcement, like the prison system. And on that stuff, Amash has been, even when there's nobody else saying it, the dude saying, no, we should not be spending a lot of money on this. No, we shouldn't be just we shouldn't be enthusiastic about the arm of the state just when it happens to, you know, be doing things conservatives like. And that's caused him some tension with the rest of the Freedom Caucus. Uh, the at like the beginning of this Congress, Amash went and I or recently at least, Amash went and formed the Liberty Caucus to kind of defend this stuff from a Freedom Caucus that has increasingly been not only the people in the House Republican Caucus who are pushing for extremely aggressive immigration policies, but also a block of Trump loyalists in a Republican caucus that, you know, in both chambers is not always the most enthusiastic about doing whatever Trump wants. Yeah, so let's let's talk about like libertarians. Like, like what's the deal? You guys, like, both used to be libertarians or something. Is that right? I don't Uh, think that's true for me, at least. No, I mean, I I feel like there's like a small libertarian who gets all angry and annoyed sometimes, but then generally has a snack and is okay for a little while. I have have like known social (laughs) uh, connections to libertarians. All right. I I, I used to play in a poker game with libertarians. (laughs) So the idea of libertarianism, I guess— is that the government shouldn't do anything. Well, no, well, I mean technically that's anarchism. But like okay. I think I think it's useful to start with like it, for those of you well, who took a intro to political philosophy in college, there's like the kind of John Locke model of how governance works, right? And it's like individual humans are basically pretty good. Right. And if you can get those like basically pretty good rational people to like collectively, you know, figure out their own affairs and like, yeah, there are some things you need the government as a coordinating actor for, but like generally give a man some property and allow him to participate meaningfully in the political process and you're set. Sure. Um, so, so, like, so, it's, so, the, so, so, I mean, the, the notion of property is pretty important here because there's been an ongoing fight among libertarians for the last like decade plus over is the more important thing fighting structures of oppression generally, whether that's the state, whether that's like religion, which can often be a a constriction on autonomy, whether that's like sometimes there are very coercive market practices, or is, is the core of libertarianism this idea of property rights and therefore you really shouldn't get exercised about other about things like racism or sexism or other things that can be coercive to an individual like life outcomes, but that do not involve somebody standing on his land. Right. So and there's been kind of this long lasting break within libertarians between libertarians and kind of right libertarianism, which I think the examples uh Mises and other thinkers who basically made the argument in the you know in the 50s and 60s essentially that like, you know, the Civil Rights Act was inherently unlibertarian because it required private actors to do business in a way that you know, violated their freedoms. But that, in general, is not an argument that many libertarians make because, as Dara was pointing out, libertarianism, based on kind of the ideas of Friedrich Hayek, r- relies in some senses on the idea of spontaneous order, this idea that people are generally good, and if you let people just kind of do their own thing, people will self-organize in a way that is 
advantageous for liberty. Like the point of libertarianism to libertarians is the pursuit of liberty. And now occasionally that goes, it depends on whose liberty and liberty from what. And those are a lot of questions, but that's kind of the undergirding intra-debate among libertarians for libertarians. Well, so no, I, I, in I the, in the context it. of like politics, like politicians at the national level, right? There's something of a, con- there's been, I think, the last decade has maybe like made this a little bit clearer as the kind of culture war aspects have become more salient in partisan politics. But like under the older like Paul Ryan model of what the Republican Party should be, right, the idea that the fundamental fight between Democrats and Republicans is over the size of government. Like in that model, libertarians represented the right wing of the Republican Party well, because they believed in a smaller government than even other Republicans did. Well, th- this is this is where I, I want to try to yeah, yeah, draw yeah, yeah. like a like a threefold distinction. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. There, there are Three things that that libertarianism can mean. Right. One is as a very um, austere philosophical doctrine. Right. Right. In which case, libertarianism means like less, right? Like less government spending, less government regulation, um, including skepticism of spending on the military, you know, as as Dara was saying, things conservatives like, but also things Democrats like. And it puts you to an extent like almost like beyond the scope of partisan political conflict in the United States in in some ways. And this is like, um, I I took a seminar that was taught by by Robert Nozick when I was in college, Um, you know, and this is, you're you're off in in a lofty plane, right? Second is, I think, a notion of a libertarian as someone who is attitudinally favorable to markets on economic policy and toward liberalism on social cultural topics. Right. Everybody's and, taken the like four quadrant right, political right. compass. But, but, but that tends to make you a moderate in politics yes. and importantly is not exactly the same as philosophical libertarianism because like one thing that socially liberal people tend to like is anti-discrimination laws, mm-hmm. right? Which in an austere philosophical sense is government action. But like in an attitudinal sense, like I don't love big government, but like I'm I'm cool, right? I'm I'm like in the top right, right quadrant, you're maybe more uh, uh akin to. And so somebody like Susan Collins, right, as a practical politician occupies that space. And that makes you a you're a moderate Republican, typically, if you were in that kind of space, or in some cases, uh, particularly if you come from a very blue state, a moderate Democrat. Right. right? Like, a, that's the a, kind a of busy... voter who might have looked at Donald Trump and then voted for Democrats in 2018. Exactly. Then a different stance of libertarianism, and this is, I think, like the Tea Party in practice, the Freedom Caucus in practice, is you are the right wing of the Republican Party. So you say the Civil Rights Act is an infringement of liberty. That's an example of -of out-of-control business regulation, right? And then, you know, you tend toward attitudinal cultural conservatism, not necessarily because you want, but because no one is saying, like, there should be government-enforced segregation, right? You are saying that, like, existing social hierarchies should be allowed to stay how they are without new things. And you were saying when Paul Ryan was president, uh, oh, not president. Um, when, when, when Paul Ryan was influential leader, you're saying like, yeah, we got to cut everything, like no compromise with Obama. And, th- but the and, things that you're actually prioritizing cutting are like PBS and food right. stamps, not, you know. But but that that's where you get 
the rightward faction of House Republicans. It, it's totally reasonable for the uh, there will always be a rightmost faction of House Republicans. Uh, they formed a caucus. And so they needed a name for themselves. And what they came up with was the Freedom Caucus, right? Like they are the true libertarians. Then when Trump becomes president, that group of people becomes the rightmost faction of House Republicans, meaning the Trumpiest. Yes. Right? And here is where Amash, who has existed somewhere between like Freedom Caucus and austere philosophy – winds up having it doesn't work anymore he's he, because what the freedom he's colonized himself well right. i mean it's extent. it's nowhere right like it's 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 an interesting thing because like this is the impeachment question right like right. has honestly nothing to do with small government or anything right. it's like a question of personal loyalty to donald trump and what what I mean, like the point of Amash taking this stance is like he is not a personal loyalist of donald trump right i mean i I think that it's, the opposite. this is not like the rise of libertarian as a way to identify the right most con- faction in the Republican Party, you can see the seeds of this in the Ron Paul 2008 run, where there was a lot of kind of surprising heterodox grassroots energy, a lot of people who had not previously been interested in Republican primary politics, and this weird mix of people who really liked Ron Paul because they thought that he was going to be like better on ending the wars, right? right. Like there were yeah. they, they were more interested in him as a Republican because he was an anti-war Republican than they had been in previous Republicans. And the people who were like, yes, cut everything also, you know, and who might have agreed with the things that Ron Paul's newsletters said back in the 90s about right. how blacks were super predators. Um, there's a quote from Congressman Tom Massey that I'm always, always, always going to bring up in this context because it's extremely illustrative and also because Massey himself has become one of the, you know, he's he's gone the direction of the Freedom Caucus and being now a big Trump defender. But when Rand Paul was running for president and really not getting a lot of traction in 2016, Massey said, you know, Rand and I and the other Tea Partiers, we came up in 2010 and there was all this grassroots energy. And I was like, great, there's so much enthusiasm for limited government. They really agree with our philosophy. And then so many of the same people are now supporting Donald Trump. And I realized that they were just supporting the craziest guy in the room. Right. <laughs> um, which is, you know, a more honest than most politicians are assessment of his own base of supporters. Um, but does kind of speak to the way in which libertarian has become an attitudinal like thing that you a thing that you identify with as a grassroots Republican if you think you know if if ideology is really important to you and cutting government is really important to you and therefore doesn't necessarily predict your stance on either social issues or the personal character of Donald J. Trump. Right. And it I mean I think it's a fascinating overall space beginnings of fracturing that is taking place among conservatives and libertarians, because I think you're seeing, you know, I've talked a lot about the rise of conservative populism, and you're starting to see on the policy side, um, certain, you know, senators Mike Lee and Josh Hawley talking about these issues, Josh Hawley really focusing on social media and social media regulation. But this idea undergirding that, that what if using the government to do things we like is good? Right. And what if, you know, using the power of government against private enterprises that we don't like is also good, which, you know, if you're Justin Amash or any libertarian basically ever, except for the occasional libertarian who writes for Claremont about how breaking up Facebook is actually a 
show of freedom. You know, this is it's a really weird and fascinating split because I think that you're also seeing some conservatives, you know, I've spoken to some who have talked about how the libertarian influence on conservatism is bad. The number of conservatives, self-described conservatives who've brought up Teddy Roosevelt as their government model and kind of said that, you know, the libertarian influence and this idea that the free market will fix everything, the invisible hand will solve our problems, you know, that's wrong, which it's such a fascinating thing. So I'm like, you know, a lot of people have been saying this for like, well, you know, 40, 50 years. But it's interesting how that split and that fracturing is growing. And in the midst of that is Justin Amash, who's actually not talking in this context about issues having to do with life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. He is talking specifically in these two Twitter threads about the issue of the Mueller report and impeaching Donald Trump. Well, but I, it's think, so- I, think, I think the point is that Amash has become a friendless before this Twitter thread, right? Right. Because Amash was like not playing these games, he'd become a person with no faction in Congress, which I think in some ways has let him see this particular question of the Mueller report more clearly, not just than Republicans, but more clearly than Democrats. So I know that that is definitely an indication for us to take a break, but I do think that there's one thing. Like, it's not that this is totally orthogonal to libertarian views of the federal government. There is like a very strong intellectual strand of libertarianism um, that has been very skeptical of the rising power of the executive branch and the judicial branch over the legislative branch. And so impeachment as something that as a remedy that Congress has to check a branch of government that libertarians have been very worried about kind of overwhelming Congress is like there's absolutely a consistency for that. And I've actually even seen some folks uh, saying, yes, I agree that that impeachment should be more frequent. You know, either Bush or Obama should have been impeached. Sure. Right. Um, you know, that like I agree with Justin Amash on that. I just don't agree that Trump is the person to impeach. It's it's been interesting, but it's it's not exactly it's this is definitely in part the kind of political islandization of Justin Amash, but it is also Justin Amash saying, if I correctly apply my principles here, I believe that the balance of, of you know, the system of checks and balances requires us to do this. Okay. Let's take a break. And then, then I want to talk about the specifics of, of what he said about Mueller. Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. Your body is your own. That's why Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Today, lawmakers who oppose abortion are challenging Planned Parenthood. Affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. Planned Parenthood believes that health care is a basic human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies. They also work tirelessly to oppose the onslaught of new policies aimed at interfering with personal decisions best left to patients and their doctors. They won't give up, and they won't back down. You can join Planned Parenthood in the fight to help make sure that the next generation can decide their own futures. The organization needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Support for The Weeds comes from Burrow. Okay, are you ready for the understatement of the century? Buying furniture can be frustrating. You end up visiting a bunch of stores searching aimlessly for the right pieces to match your home, 
then spent hours trying to get those pieces together or together again if you got it wrong the first time. And that's even if you were able to get it through the door. Burrow is a furniture company that wants to make the whole thing easier. Burrow's new Dune line features a contemporary yet timeless look inspired by the craftsmanship of classic mid-century construction. If you're looking to bring a sense of luxury, comfort, and durability to your outdoor spaces, you might want to consider Burrow. Like all of Burrow's pieces, they offer easy assembly and disassembly so you can move or store them away as needed. Not only that, they ship straight to your door for free. Listeners of The Weeds can get 15% off their first order at burrow.com slash weeds. That's Burrow, B-U-R-R-O-W dot com slash weeds for 15% off. Burrow.com slash weeds. Okay, so I would just really strongly recommend Amash's second Twitter thread on this to people. I'm just going to read it. He says, people who say there were no underlying crimes and therefore the president could not have intended to illegally obstruct the investigation and therefore cannot be impeached are resting their argument on several falsehoods. One, they say there were no underlying crimes. In fact, there were many crimes revealed by the investigation, some of which were charged and some of which were not, but are nonetheless described in Mueller's report. Two, they say obstruction of justice requires an underlying crime. In fact, obstruction of justice does not require the prosecution of an underlying crime, and there's a logical reason for that. Prosecutors might not charge a crime precisely because obstruction of justice denied them timely access to evidence that could lead to a prosecution. If an underlying crime were required, then prosecutors could could charge obstruction of justice only if it were unsuccessful in completely obstructing the investigation. This would make no sense. Um, He says a few other things, but I think that's basically right and clearly right, and it's interesting. I mean— There's a whole context of, like, the courage vis-a-vis other Republicans and the primary challenge he's going to face. But what I think is actually interesting about this is that most Trump critics are also members of the Democratic Party, and they are invested in a larger sense in the political success of the Democratic Party. And they have not crazy concerns about pushing forward with a seemingly unpopular and doomed in the Senate impeachment inquiry, um, precisely because Amash doesn't care about that he can sort of throw this on the table. But I think it's I, I think it's basically right, you know? I mean, that like what you have here described in the Mueller report is pretty clearly a situation in which Donald Trump used and tried to use his powers of office in inappropriate ways to stifle investigations. We don't know whether he personally could have been charged with something had he not screwed around with the Manafort thing. But even assuming he's completely innocent, it's like it's not appropriate to meddle with the operation of criminal investigations to help out your friend Mike Flynn, to help out your ex-campaign manager Paul Manafort. Like if you just describe the bare situation in the abstract, right? Like the mayor of mid-sized city X fired the police chief because the police chief was investigating something and the mayor knew that the investigation would get his buddy locked up in jail. Like, you'd say that was bad, right? right? Like, to an extent, like, it's stupid to say just ignore the politics and think about the facts because, like, you can't take the politics out of politics. Yeah. That said, you know, sometimes it's it's clarifying to read a tweet storm that doesn't talk about the politics of the situation. So I, I, I would actually say that it's clarifying also because the Constitution doesn't require Congress to impeach the president if the president has required has committed high crimes and misdemeanors. Right. Like Congress does have a choice. Yes. Um. So 
In theory, and obviously you would never have this, but in theory, you could have Mitch McConnell come out and say, yeah, we agree that the president committed impeachable offenses, but we, the Senate, the body that would be conducting the trial of whether he, you know, like whether having been impeached, he should be removed from office are ruled by Republicans. And therefore, we're going to keep Donald Trump in office. And therefore, we're not going to want to move forward with the impeachment process. Like that is a thing that he could do. And it would not be, it's not like a, you know, subpoena or anything else where it's like one branch of government compelling the other, you know, like by a certain set of actions, another branch of government is compelled to do something, you know. And and I guess this this also means I should probably nuance my previous point. Like, I think I said something about Amash saying that like they're compelled to do this. And he, he didn't. He said he actually deliberately, I assume, said impeachable conduct rather than yeah. saying should be impeached. Right. Because it's not necessarily a like it's just a descriptive acknowledgement of like, yes, this right. fits within an ambit that if we chose to as Congress, we could do something about. And so right. now, like, the ball is very much in Nancy Pelosi's court as to whether to do anything about it. And what I don't particularly understand, and I I have kind of my uh, gut, under, gut assessment, assessment of why this is, but the thing that has been frustrating to a lot of pro-impeachment Democrats is that before this weekend, before the Amash tweet storm, Democratic leadership was saying the reason that we're wary of impeachment is because we don't want it to be a partisan thing. We want it to be bipartisan. We, you know, if we if if there were if this could be abstracted from partisanship, then we would go forward with it. And now you have an important like one of the more important ways you can make something bipartisan is to have somebody of the other party sign on to it. Right. And it does not appear that that has changed the calculus of Democratic leadership at all. And like, I can understand on one level, yes, if you had been running a betting market on which member of the Republican Party in Congress would be most likely to call for the impeachment of Donald Trump, like you would not very get very good odds on Justin Amash. He would be by far the most obvious choice for all the reasons that we've been discussing. But I think that that can get a little circular when you're saying, well, yeah, but it's Justin Amash. He doesn't really count at this point. When, in fact, he is a Republican and generally a lot of things that we call bipartisan in D.C. are really the people who you would expect from the other party signing on right. to one party's priorities. Which I thought, you know, and I, I was glad to see a couple of conservative commentators pointing this out, that like Kevin McCarthy was like, oh, Justin Amash is just doing this for attention. And it's like, Kevin McCarthy, really? There's been a lot of kind of conversation about how um, among libertarians, because the, the Libertarian Party exists, um, there, you know, in 2016, they nominated uh, Gary Johnson, whose campaign relied really heavily on the on his argument that he was 50 percent like Hillary Clinton and 50 percent like Donald Trump, which, you know, was an argument. Um, but the new chair of the Libertarian Party is saying, you know, if Amash wanted to switch parties, because currently Amash is a Republican, but if he wanted to switch to the Libertarian Party, they would perhaps be interested in him <laughs> launching a presidential bid. Which oh my would be both, it's, you know, in the, could this thing actually happen? No. Is it an interesting thing? Yes. This over, you know, this overarching idea and Amash's efforts to take the politics out of this uh-huh. and how politics have responded to his efforts is really interesting. But also, I mean, to agree with Dara, right? I mean, it just, it seems like, look, tactically, like, like yes, like you don't want to go all in on a totally doomed impeachment. But that also means that like when the door starts to open, right? Like so like one thing you have going on right now is Bill Weld, who 
a long time ago, was governor of Massachusetts, classic New England moderate Republican. He is running as a primary challenger to Donald Trump. He was relevantly Gary Johnson's running mate in 2016. Obviously, Bill Weld is not going to beat Donald Trump in a primary and then become president of the United States. But this is an effort by a person with some kind of connection to Republican Party politics to take a stand against Donald Trump. Phil Scott, a currently practicing moderate Republican, New England governor of Vermont, he has said that he is endorsing Bill Weld. That is his effort to like get out of the jam of the Republican who needs to run in a moderate kind mm-hmm. of terrain. Justin Amash, who is not a New England moderate, but is nonetheless a Republican, Donald Trump critic, he's saying, I want to impeach Donald Trump. This would be, for for a Democratic Party that was interested in getting rid of Donald Trump, a good opportunity to come back to Phil Scott, right, who clearly feels under pressure to make some kind of gestures toward breaking with Trump to be like, well, do you agree? Like, you're not the first one. Like, a House member from a much more conservative constituency than you is saying this. Like, like, where are you, Phil Scott? And if Phil Scott says, yeah, fuck it, right? I've already thrown Trump under the brush with, with the Weld endorsement. I'm also for impeachment. Right. Yeah. Now Donald you Trump is not exactly the kind of dude who's going to be like, oh, I will forgive you for endorsing my primary right. challenger. So that ship is sailed. But now you have a problem for Susan Collins, who, like Phil Scott, is a statewide elected official in New England state. Yep. But Maine is not as left wing as Vermont. So Collins is in the classic Republican squeeze where she's not going to win as a diehard 100% Trump loyalist, but she's also not going to win going down fighting with Donald Trump. Democrats really, really, really need to win some Senate races. It looks like they're going to probably not win a Maine Senate race because Collins is very popular in Maine. But like the Democratic party to govern needs to, like, make trouble with Susan Collins. Phil Scott agreeing with Justin Amash about impeachment would create a problem for Collins, right? And and this is like, I mean, I I don't even know why I need to explain this, but, like, this is politics. It's, like, built one step at a time. Like, a far-right House member deciding that because he's an idiosyncratic guy who's mad at the Freedom Caucus having thrown a lot of their principles underboard, and now he's going to be for impeachment. Like, that is an opportunity. But instead, Democrats have been, ever since Manafort backed out of his cooperation agreement, Democrats have been running scared They've been treating bad news for Trump as bad news for them, right? Because, like, their dream scenario was, like, Paul Manafort just, like, hands over reams of documents that, like, show Donald Trump, like, taking cash from Putin. Like, once it became clear that 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 wasn't going to happen, Democrats started worrying, like, what if Mueller says he obstructed justice? Then we're gonna have. Then the. Then we're gonna have to impeach him. But we don't want to impeach him. And I, I. I get it actually. That like it's a. It's a tough tactical situation. But like it's politics. You gotta try to get out of the tactical situation. Like Amash is creating an opportunity. They have all these subpoenas going. Trump is stonewalling all of them. Like Democrats are mad about that. And like you gotta say it at some point that like what's going on here is they think this guy's a crook. Yeah, I mean, I think running scared is not necessarily wrong, but fundamentally what's going on is that 
Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi believe fervently to win in 2020, Democrats need to be hitting pocketbook issues, need to be hitting the kind of like things that they know voters like it when government does, like education, healthcare, and that kind of thing. And that, you know, they should be hitting Donald Trump on that and, you know, not because of the Russia stuff so much. Um, you know, which fine it, it, that I mean, it certainly makes sense as a strategy. It just means that the reaction to any given news story can be very weird because it does come off as evasive if the statement you release in response to any incremental development in the Mueller investigation is we need to be focusing on the things that really matter. Like it's at a certain point, it sounds like you're trying not to talk about it because you are. But you know, there is something of a macro strategic problem for Democrats and kind of the putting pressure on Susan Collins strategy, because in theory, the moderate Republicans are the ones most likely to agree with individual Democratic initiatives. They're also the people who are often the highest priorities for for Democrats to pick off. So putting pressure on Susan Collins to do something that will make her more popular with moderates in Maine may backfire if it helps her win re-election. So like, yes, okay, that that is a a strategic calculus that like can be tricky. But in individual cases, and specifically in this individual case, A, Democrats aren't going to mount a credible challenge to Justin Amash in 2020. Like that is right. probably not, it is more likely that he's going to get successfully primaried. Who knows? Which, which is already coming up yeah. by people who are now changing their Twitter banners to show them and Trump standing together in yeah. a, you know. Oh, I'm sure he'll but lose like, his primary. I mean, so so that, you know, but like, it's not that Democrats are looking at Justin Amash and going, gee, that was a really winnable seat for us. No. If we praise what he just did, that will become a less winnable yeah, seat. Like yeah, yeah. that's not going to happen at all. And also, you know, yeah, okay, come election day, the people who you may lose might be the people who you agree with in individual cases. Like a lot of the seats that Republicans lost in 2018 were people who were more likely to cross the aisle on certain things. So the Republican minority is a more conservative one than the Republican majority was. But like that doesn't necessarily change the calculus of when you send out statements saying, you know, praising one member of a party and asking when other members will join him. Like right. that is a thing you can do, even if you're going to organize against that same incumbent coming into November 2020. I also just think that like the pocketbook issues and the fact that the president is a corrupt person are not distinct themes, right? Like if you had a politician whose integrity was unimpeachable, right? And like nobody had any hint of scandal about the guy, but he was pushing some unpopular healthcare policy ideas and also he got campaign contributions from health insurance companies. Democrats would not be like befuddled. Like do we focus on healthcare or do we focus on his ties to industry, right? Like it's not like they're not idiots, right? Like it's normal stuff. So like if the president is taking shady bribes, and also you have these pocketbook issues you want to hit him on. Like it's all of a piece, right? Like if he's obstructing justice, right, to protect his cronies, if he's firing the FBI director to make sure that criminal investigations cannot trust his friends, and he's also appointing regulators who are too friendly with businesses and they're letting you dump toxic chemicals, right? Like that's all one thing. You know, and if like one, even if even a far right Republican can see that there's something wrong with the way Trump is conducting himself, like that's like that's all the better. The thing is, though, that like 
I often urge people to make the actual argument they're attempting to make. And so there are a lot of Republicans who are well aware that Trump's actions or Trump's behavior is inappropriate, edging on impeachable. They just don't care. Right. They're, no, they're, I mean, it's we get into like the sunk cost argument, which is actually something that's been going back and forth uh, between Josh Hammer and a writer at The Bulwark and a couple of other conservatives. <laughs> but just the idea, you know, I think it should be very clear that if Republicans responded to Amash's thread by saying, like, no, we recognize that you feel this way, but we just don't care. That would, I think, be a much more straightforward argument than attempting to disprove this particular argument. Because the understanding here, you know, there's been a lot of, you know, kind of like, ah, like, you know, what are the bars for impeachment? And what are, you know, does this behavior fit it? Does this behavior? Like, no, 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 no. One, impeachment is a political decision, not so much based on criminal law. But also, if you're a Republican and you're like, okay, Trump did bad things. But he's also done these good things, and the good things outweigh the bad things, so I just don't care. I think that's a much more straightforward argument than attempting to prove that, you know, to prove that the emperor is, in fact, fully dressed, wearing a coat, in fact. So my question about this, though, is, like, it is not exactly, like— what Republicans are afraid of is President Mike Pence, right? Like, no. if anything, Mike Pence would be a more consistent defender right. of Republican policy priorities. at least Donald Trump appoints priorities. good drudges, so we can't have Mike Pence? Like, that right. doesn't yeah, make sense. Right. So, so it's not—so what I want to know is, to what extent is this a fear that impeachment per se would, would harm the party's, like— electoral prospects because it would it would make it seem damaged and to what extent is this a fear that Donald Trump is personally really popular with the base and they're not sure that anybody else is as popular as Donald Trump is like i feel like either of those is viable and i can't tell which it is i'm like was just old enough when bill clinton was being impeached to like try to remember what was going on there because looking back on it in retrospect it's very different, but it has a sort of broad structural similarity, which is that the technical question on the table was like, should Al Gore become president of the United States? But in Democrats' heads, right, the question they were addressing was, should Newt Gingrich be allowed to successfully persecute Bill Clinton? Y- you know what I mean? And like their feeling was no. Their feeling was like, all things considered, we don't like Newt Gingrich. It's important to us that Newt Gingrich has leveled a lot of charges against Bill Clinton that we think are false. You know, like, we think it's important that this whole thing is undertaken in bad faith, that they were, like, against him from day one. We think it's important that we agree with him on important questions of public policy. And you could, right? Like, you could delve back down into and be like, okay, but, like, we're just talking about Al Gore becoming president, right? Like, it's true this was done in bad faith. It's true this was done by President Clinton's enemies. But like, because they're his enemies, they looked into this really, really rigorously. And they found something that's like, actually pretty bad. And so maybe we shouldn't let him get away with it. And and it's convenient that in our system of government, if you impeach the president, the vice president who has similar policy views right. comes in. Because otherwise, you might really never impeach anyone, right? If it was like, it just went to a lottery and some total rando took over, then then how 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 could you ever do it? Um, but like that's not how Democrats saw it at the time. And I think for Republicans, it's obviously the same. It's that like Donald Trump himself has become a symbol in the culture wars, right? So it's like 
is political correctness out of control or is there a terrifying rising tide of white supremacy, right? And like, even though whether or not Donald Trump impeached, committed impeachable offenses has nothing to do with that, like it has everything to do with it. Fair enough. Should we uh, take a break and talk about Latino housing? Let's I think do we it. should take a break and talk about Latino housing before the the, the libertarian within me <laughs> <laughs> breaks into, you know, hulks out. Okay. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com. So the white paper that we have selected today uh, to our, I think, collective great enthusiasm because it is several hobby horses, I think, for all of us, is called Vanishing Wealth, Vanishing Votes, question mark, Latino Homeownership and the 2016 Election in Florida. And it's written by Jacob Rue, who is a really exciting youngish sociologist uh, out of Brigham Young. And what Jacob has, what Professor Rue has done is he has records of mortgages and foreclosures in the Orlando, Florida area from 2004 to 2016. And so looking at patterns in who was underwater on their mortgages, who was foreclosed on during that period by race, by what documentation they provided. So, you know, if you're a citizen and you have a driver's license versus if you're presenting your green card versus if you're presenting some other form of ID, which like might mean that you are an unauthorized immigrant. Uh, So looking at those patterns and then trying to figure out whether there are connections between the people between those mortgage outcomes and being an inactive voter on the rolls specifically in the 2016 election um the there are a bunch of kind of findings here primarily that latino democrats who got foreclosed on were a lot less likely to be active voters in 2016 um compared to other ethnicities and partisanships. Like Latino Republicans acted like white Republicans. Even if they were in foreclosure, it did not necessarily affect their voting behavior. But for Latino Democrats in particular, being in foreclosure and being underwater on mortgages suggested that they were less likely to vote in 2016. Furthermore, there's kind of that like creates a change in the composition of the Latino vote, right? The Latino vote is going to get more Republican if fewer Latino Democrats are showing up. And so there is a connection between the Democratic vote share in the 2016 election and, you know, housing prices and foreclosure rates, uh, partly because of, you know, high black foreclosures leading to changes in black turnout, partly because of this like partisan split among Latinos. So the bottom line takeaway here is like voting is not a natural thing for a lot of people. It is not something that people who are in particularly, you know, who don't have who have a lot of other things going on in their lives, who like have trouble making ends meet, who have trouble getting through day to day, they are particularly, their voting is fragile, right? And that is that is particularly true of groups that are not, that are, don't make a habit of voting all the time. Like older voters are, older white voters in particular, are, and, and black women voters are extremely reliable. Like those are less sensitive to to changes. Latino voters, on the other hand, are a, very they're they're not a group that has in general 
a typical practice of coming out to vote every two years. And so something changing in your life, especially something as fundamental as like being foreclosed on, like you may not know where you're living. You right. may be, you know, you you have other things in your life to worry about. And so you may be less likely to turn out to vote. But it turns out that this actually changes the outcome of elections at a, at a certain point of closeness, such as Florida was in 2016. Also, importantly, I mean, I think big picture backdrop for this. One of the longstanding presumptions of 21st century American politics had been that if the Republican Party attempted to mobilize um, anti-immigrant demagoguery in a high-profile national campaign, that that would generate a backlash, right? That it, And that that backlash would specifically take the dual forms of alienating Cuban-American who are not directly impacted by immigration politics, but out of broader sense of shared threat, and also that it might change the historic low turnout pattern of uh, Latinos right. generally. And this continues to be somewhat contested, but I think that what we've really seen is multiple strands of evidence that that is not the case, right? That like one of the reasons Trump style politics worked and one of the reasons why politicians who are much less like personally nutty and crazy than Donald Trump clearly are going to take up this banner is that it turns out that like this fear that had been haunting Republicans, that they were going to awaken the kind of slumbering giant of Latino non-voters is just not really true. Right. And that you're looking at a population who is not super engaged with politics and that, you know, all this other stuff happens and it can even push engagement levels down. Right. I, I think that if you take that and the kind of broader like people in lower propensity groups are less likely to vote when things are going on in their lives that are bad point, right. what you end up with is – there's a pretty strong correlation in like how in swing between 2016 and 2018 or like swing to the Republican Party over the last six or so years um, in whether how much home prices have rebounded. Yes. Like it, where home prices have rebounded more, voters, specifically Latino voters, are much more likely to like, you know, the, the Latino vote is much more likely to shift to Democrats. Again, not because people who would otherwise be voting for Republicans are voting for Democrats, but because Democrats are more likely to turn out to vote. And so there's something of a circularity here, right, where people for whom things are going well, who feel that government is responding to their needs, who have have faith in institutions, are more likely to turn out to vote, which means politicians are more likely to get elected who see themselves as responsive to those voters right. and are going to do things that, you know, tr that help them. This paper is worrisome to me in kind of the electoral implications because in a world where voter access is being framed as a partisan issue because everyone knows which kinds of voters are more likely to turn out for which parties, if you abstract that one level further and say, OK, if we pass policies that are going to help this group of people, they are more likely to turn out in the next election, which means we are more likely or less likely to get elected. That could create a, a partisanization of, you know, 
policy more generally, where you start hearing people argue, we shouldn't do this because it would make X group of voters' lives better and so they'd be more willing to turn out next time. Like that that would be a, an objectively terrible outcome for democracy. But it is something that, you know, papers like this demonstrate would in fact be like right. a causal connection you can draw. The other thing that I kind of want to point out here is just looking at the mortgage outcomes as the final point rather than the starting point. What Rue finds is that even controlling for income and like marital status and education and a lot of other things that, you know, generally predict financial outcomes, that Latinos who had that Latinos were more likely to foreclose than other groups and that importantly, having low equity to begin with and having like presenting some form of other identification that indicated that they weren't necessarily citizens or green card holders were both very important variables independent, you know, like controlling for all these other things, which suggests, A, that Latinos, like African-Americans, were particularly hard hit by the mortgage crisis because they were already operating from low home equity, whereas whites who were underwater on their mortgages, you know, may not have necessarily needed to foreclose uh, and may have actually been more motivated to turn out to vote in one of the interesting side findings here. Um, But also that there is kind of a legal precarity associated with not being a citizen or green card holder that might make it more likely for you to foreclose and, of course, wipe out Right. The wealth that you are building and wipe out your kind of social stability in the U.S. as well. And that dynamic is something that is, you know, that Rue's previous work, which talks about the relationship between deportations and foreclosures, builds on. But it's something that I think is really important to talk about as, you know, we continue to live under like a Trump administration that is enforcing a lot of social of a lot of social precarity on people who are legally precarious, like things like trying to regulate social service use so that people are afraid to mm-hmm. use it, are, are afraid to use social services because they're worried they won't get green cards. You know, some of the kind of very visible ICE enforcement tactics, the people who are who have reason to be afraid of the government becoming less able to participate in public life more broadly is like my personal hobby horse and something that findings like this make clear is a legit concern. Right. And I think that we see that across um, with other non-white groups. Um, you saw that with regard to African-American turnout in 2016 in cities like Milwaukee, where you know journalists who went there and spoke with African-American voters heard from voters that like, you know, I have really, imp- they're one, I don't feel like either of the people running for the presidency are listening to me. But also, you know, I don't I I'm working three jobs like my life is very precarious because of a lack of, you know, social services and a lack of kind of the safety net necessary to take this take the time to go vote or take the time to even take part in kind of civic exercises more generally. And there there are some who would argue that that's kind of the point. But I think that that, that is something that's reflective. I also think that our understandings of how um, non-white Americans vote, because I think that you get that a little bit um, specifically regarding to African-American conservatives, this idea of like, you know, why would you do that? Like, like, that is, I think... A falsehood about, you know, and I'm glad that this paper analyzes kind of different intra-group differences among Latinos and voting, um, specifically about, you know, how some, you know, many Latinos are very socially conservative and that bears out in how they vote. 
though for African Americans who are who also tend to be more socially conservative, that does not bear out. And boy, isn't that a fascinating historical lesson for us all. Well, and it's also like the paper points out that conservative ideology is a more important predictor than skin color or other factors in whether Latinos identify as white or not. Right. Um, which really does indicate like it helps, I think, explain the Republican shift you're talking about, right. Jane, right? Where, like, Latino Republicans are like, I'm not Latino, I'm Republican to a certain extent, right? Like, they, wow. I mean, it's not like, <laughs> I, not, that's not literally what they're saying, but there is an extent to which their kind of, their political affiliation is driving a racial identification. I might actually interpret that okay. backwards. Okay, go. Which is that I think that... um Fair-skinned, reasonably well-assimilated Latinos, maybe like white people, basically, maybe more likely if they are Democrats to decide for ideological reasons. Oh yeah, right. So it's right. So it's like you got to make a choice, right? It's like, am I like just another white dude, right? Or like, no, 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 I'm Latino, right? And that's a, I, I think, like left ethnic. Identification. I mean, particularly looking at Florida, right? You a lot of Cuban people. You know, you could sort of go either way, right? Based on like how do you judge them, quote unquote, racially, right? And it's like Democrats actually have a reason to like insist on their people of coloriness uh, because of the internal politics of Democratic Party coalitions. Um, whereas I think more conservative people, you know, like who pass are like, yeah, like I'm I'm in. Yeah, I mean, the kind of one level more abstract way to talk about it is like something I have said on the podcast before and came from somebody else and I do not remember who it was, is is the fundamental divide in American racial politics white versus non-white or black versus non-black, yes. right? Like Democrats are now all in on the, the divide is white versus non-white and non-white people are unwelcome in the Republican Party but welcome in our party. Yes. The Republican Party isn't explicitly taking a position on this, but the idea that Latino Americans and Asian Americans like you know, because they are because they believe in hard work and, you know, some of them have socially conservative views that like that implies a level of assimilation that like that they are becoming um, that that is going to trump any kind of, you know, need to establish an ethnic identity first and foremost that aligns more with the black versus non-black side of that debate. Right. Exactly. I mean, I think, you know, we, we talked about reparations several episodes ago, but like I think. Republicans would love – they would like to have a reparations debate with white Americans, but they would love to have it with Asian and Latino Americans. I mean, that's, right? that's essentially that, – that's where the affirmative action, you know, in New York the uh, and at Harvard, um, you know, the yeah, debate yeah, yeah. over affirmative action is largely taking place via Asian American groups because – even though the people who are heading up the effort right. in court with regard to Harvard specifically is a white guy. Tying it back to the, yeah. to the paper, something that I you know think is interesting here and, and you see in a lot of research and that can get get lost in these things is, you know, of course, we take it for granted that like what white writers and intellectuals think is not reflective of the overall white population. But like the same thing is true of black and Latino intellectuals. And also that like, you know, I mean, this is obvious, but like black and Latino people have economic interests, not just like racial group identity type interests. And, you know, it's it can be very 
salient that like Donald Trump is running around saying racist stuff, but it doesn't mean that that's what actually matters most to people, right? Even to these so-called the notional like victims of that kind of rhetoric, right? It's like if you're losing your house, like that's just a really big deal, right? And like what people might want to hear from politicians who are saying, like, I support you, you should support me, is that they are engaged with you on this level of your house and its loss rather than this, like, metatextual issue about who are we as Americans, right? I mean, like— Maybe, but it's also possible that, like, while that might be a nice thing to hear from a politician, you're still going to be more— likely to spend election day trying to keep your house than voting for that politician. Yeah, but I mean, I don't think, uh, I think it's wrong to see this as like literally you are too encumbered by problems to vote. It's that, is it voting is like pro-social activity, right? That people, that you engage in when you have a pro-social mentality. Right. And it's just if you feel like you're forgotten and like people don't care about you and your problems, you're not going to bother to do it. Right. And that means the politicians have to be talking about the stuff that's on the top of your mind. Right. And they're always making guesses as to like, well, what do people care about? And we know like there are multiple kinds of people and also people care about multiple things, but people only really care about a couple of things. Right. And Democrats sort of made a hard guess. That like right that like what Latinos cared about like a lot was going to be immigration and Donald Trump saying racist stuff and it's just maybe not true. I mean, possibly, but it's also true that it like it looked more true in Texas than it did in Florida, right? right. Which yes. suggests that maybe what is going on is not that Democrats made a strategic error, but that like there are structural problems. Like voting is too hard in America and should be made easier, right? Uh, and that. It is, you know, just just as a matter of democracy, because you want people who are most affected by policies who are able to vote to have a say. Right. And I think that it's it's clear. I think we don't talk enough about intra-group differences when it comes to race. Um, but I think it's also clear here that the structural barriers are different in different states. How people respond to those barriers is different. And, you know, if you are an individual in which your voting decision is based largely on, can I get the three buses I need to get to my polling place, then it's entirely understandable that perhaps your decision making may not be resting on whether or not Donald Trump said something racist, but again, on whether or not you could get somewhere to vote. Because I think, you know, I've said it before, but like, I think the overarching story of 2016 is not necessarily who voted, but who didn't, who dropped out of the voting population. And I think that we saw in numerous places, not necessarily, it was not necessarily a conscious decision of I am not going to vote. It was, I am in line to vote, but I've been here for three hours. I um, I can't get that to vote because I have to deal with this housing issue. And so it's it's interesting how politics can itself be the barrier to people taking part in politics. A great thing to do while you're waiting on many buses. Listen to Vox Media Podcast Network podcasts. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a lot out there. There's a lot of good ones. Um, so thank you all for, for listening here. Uh, thanks, as always, to our producer, Jeffrey Geld uh, and The Weeds. We'll be back on Friday. Woohoo! Huzzah!
Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com.